Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour for Monday, May the 2nd, 2022. It's amazing. We're in May already. Where's time going this year? Uh, this is Air Force veteran David Corey. My co-host Richard Hurley is on vacation. Uh, for tonight's show, we are airing the United States Department of Veterans Affairs monthly press conference, which was held last Monday afternoon, April the 22nd, 2022. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough and several other VA leaders participated in this event. And I thought you might enjoy hearing directly from them on current issues facing the VA, as well as an opportunity to hear what various members of the national media uh, have as far as questions for Secretary McDonough and the other VA leaders. The press conference is about 43 minutes in length, after which I'll have a few minutes of other news of interest to close out today's show. So, Doug, if you'll please roll the tape of the VA press conference. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for today's monthly VA press conference. Before I introduce our VA leaders, I'd like to go over today's ground rules. To our press in attendance, please raise your hand if you have a question. Once I call upon you, please walk to the microphone to give your question. To our press online, Please ensure you remain on mute for the duration of the press conference. Once the Q&A session begins, please use the raise your hand function if you have a question. Once I call upon you, please unmute. You are afforded the opportunity to ask two questions and one follow-up. Once you have asked your questions, please return to mute. If we have time at the end, we will circle back to folks with additional questions. Joining Secretary McDonough today is Dr. Stephen Lieberman, Deputy Undersecretary for Health performing the delegable duties of the Undersecretary for Health, and Dr. Elizabeth Brill, Assistant Undersecretary for Clinical Health. Drs. Lieberman and Brill will chat about VA's ongoing long COVID efforts. Since we have much to cover, I now turn the floor over to Secretary McDonough. Excellent, Terrence. Thanks very much. Nice to see everybody. Um, it's... Uh, Good to have everybody back with us, both online here and in the room. Uh, first, as you saw this morning, I'm proud that tomorrow we will publish an interim final rule establishing presumptive service connection for nine rare respiratory cancers. This new rule will keep President Biden's promise from the State of the Union, ensuring that veterans who suffer from those conditions and their survivors will get the benefits and care they've earned and so rightly deserve. To the vets watching today, if you suffer from any of those conditions and you served any amount of time in the Southwest Asian theater of operations between August 2nd, 1990 and today, or in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Syria, or Djibouti between September 19th, 2001 and today, you may be eligible for disability benefits with, without having to prove causality between your service and your condition. In the coming days, we will be reaching out to impacted vets and survivors to provide information about eligibility and claims applications. For now, you can apply for benefits by visiting va.gov slash disability. That is va.gov slash disability. Or by calling us directly at 800-827-1000. That's 800-827-1000. And if you've previously been denied benefits for any of these respiratory cancers, we encourage you to file a supplemental claim at va.gov slash decision hyphen reviews. va.gov slash decision hyphen reviews. We're going to continue moving ahead with the utmost urgency on this, and that means bringing to process these claims as soon as the rule is published tomorrow, because I know that many of you have been waiting far too long for these benefits. 
And now, hopefully, you need not wait any longer. President Biden is the first president to proactively address particular exposure for the vets who have fought our wars for these past 30 years, these past 30 years. And with his leadership, we'll stop at nothing to get all vets the exposure benefits and care they deserve. Next, I want to hand the mic over to Dr. Steve Lieberman, our acting undersecretary of health, and Dr. Elizabeth Brill, our deputy assistant secretary for health for clinical services, two world-class clinicians, but also, I must say, terrific colleagues, to talk about one of our top priorities right now, helping veterans and the nation address long COVID. You'll hear in just a moment, VA is not only helping veterans get the cr clinical care they need to recover from long COVID, we're also at the forefront of long COVID research, making groundbreaking discoveries that will deepen our understanding of this disease and help us treat it in veterans and non-veterans. This work is a perfect example of why VHA budget request is so critical for veterans and the nation as a whole. Because the work we do at VA and the lessons we learn at VA will inform and improve how the whole country respond, responds to long COVID. In other words, it'll help the nation care for veterans and non-veterans alike. And today you'll be hearing about this work from the best. Dr. Lieberman and Dr. Brill are incredible leaders and clinicians, and the tireless work they've done throughout the pandemic is emblematic of everyone at VHA who has stepped up in the very worst of circumstances to deliver the very best care for our vets. Thank you both for being here and for all your great work. Over to you. Thank you, Secretary McDonough, and thanks to all those that are attending today to listen about this important topic, long COVID. This will continue to be a public health issue for large numbers of veterans, as well as other impacted Americans, and those worldwide for a long time to come. VA, as we often have been during the pandemic, is defining the way forward on long COVID for veterans and for others impacted outside of VA. While we have learned many things about long COVID, there's still much more that we need to better understand. Researchers worldwide, including at VA, are working to best define long COVID to understand what causes it how it impacts the different human body systems, and the best treatments for symptom relief, or even better, a cure. What do we know? While there is not yet an exact definition of long COVID, the World Health Organization has defined it as new, returning, or lingering symptoms or as an exacerbation of pre-COVID health challenges, usually three months from the onset of an initial COVID-19 infection that lasts for at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternate diagnosis. There is a myriad of symptoms that can be attributed to long COVID, such as fatigue, shortness of breath, cardiovascular issues, pain, dizziness, and kidney damage. VA has over 623,000 veteran patients diagnosed with COVID-19. Current estimates are that about 4 to 7% of them have developed some form of long COVID symptoms. This may go even higher as we work to better define long COVID. As the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States, VA has extensive experience with providing multidisciplinary care for complex health issues. As a part of this, we are poised to begin to establish guidelines for the assessment and care of patients with long COVID across VA facilities. 
VA began to focus on both clinical care and research soon after long COVID emerged on the scene. Most recently, an enterprise long COVID integrated project team has been established and is charged with organizing, supporting, and reporting the progress of development and diffusion of long COVID clinical guidance and access to care support and services for all veterans. The membership of the team is comprised of an interdisciplinary team. Many members are facility and vision-based VHA staff, such as clinicians and researchers. Also on the clinical front, VA has previously established a multidisciplinary national long COVID community of practice team in the spring of 2021, made up of about 145 physicians, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, researchers, and other disciplines. Together, this group has been reviewing their knowledge lessons learned, and emerging best practices to help us to best define emerging clinical guidelines for care, as well as to solve problems faced by long COVID patients in real time. VA is working to standardize long COVID care across the enterprise. 17 VA facilities have existing long COVID clinics. Within a few months, we expect veterans will begin to be assessed for long COVID across the nation via a combination of in-person and virtual appointments. These clinics are multidisciplinary with specialties that include infectious diseases, pulmonary, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and primary care. They help veterans with any number of long COVID symptoms, like a Navy veteran who is hospitalized in a VA COVID ICU for 29 days and has been receiving long COVID care at VA. He has permanent lung damage from COVID and describes his pulmonary team and care as incredible. Asked about his experience, he said, I'm truly blessed to have VA coverage, thankful and blessed to be alive. I'm vertical. Or like one Army veteran who was in the ICU with COVID for eight days in a non-VA facility, but is now receiving care at VA for long COVID. She was the first long COVID patient, in fact, at her facility. She's dealing with scarring in her lungs, extreme fatigue, brain fog, and mild cognitive impairment from COVID. When describing her care at VA for long COVID, she said, I've gotten extreme care with the VA and really good care. Things I'm following up with, if I went to an outside physician, I'm not sure if I would have received the same overall care, like the referrals and stuff, because it is connected. Many of the veterans our practitioners have seen with long COVID have benefited from the interdisciplinary approach that is taken to address their symptoms. Tailoring cognitive strategies to the work and life activities of veterans, experiencing attention and memory difficulties has been extremely helpful in improving their abilities to function and has restored a sense of control over their symptoms. While their symptoms may not always improve significantly, how they react to these symptoms changes in a positive way. Thank you, Dr. Lieberman. Is that Gary McDonough? I want to talk to you about the research front on long COVID. VA offers a unique opportunity to study long COVID because we have detailed longitudinal medical information on 6 million veterans over 620,000 of whom have been diagnosed with COVID. Most importantly, we can compare health 
comes after COVID infection to those of similar patients who have not been infected, something many studies are unable to do. We have already gathered many notable findings using our electronic health record data, and we are filling in the picture with studies that include interviews with thousands of veterans, examinations of blood markers, and exploration of the role of genetics in disease severity and outcomes. VA has already produced several key findings on the impacts of long COVID. These include an increased risk of diabetes, cardiovascular illness, mental health disorders, and kidney disease following COVID infection. Specific findings from completed VA research studies include diabetes risk was increased even in patients with mild COVID-19 infection, yet more severe COVID infections showed greater risk of developing diabetes. People who recovered from COVID-19 were significantly more likely to have heart and vascular disease a year after infection. Overall, COVID-19 patients had a 4% higher risk of heart disease. Patients who contracted COVID-19 had a 60% higher risk of mental health disorders one year after recovering. This included a higher risk for anxiety, depression, stress disorders, sleep disorders, opioid use, substance use disorders, and cognitive conditions such as brain fog. The risk was increased even in patients who had less severe COVID-19 infection and were not hospitalized. But the risk was highest in patients with more severe COVID-19. Beyond the acute phase of illness, 30-day survivors of COVID-19 exhibited higher risks of acute kidney injury and other adverse kidney outcomes when compared to non-infected controls. The risk of adverse kidney outcomes increased along with the severity of the acute infection. Additionally, VA is supporting multiple ongoing long-term studies that will be prospectively collecting data from veteran volunteers to better understand long COVID and its outcomes. In conclusion, VA's research and clinical care responses to long COVID have enabled us to treat and care for veterans suffering from long COVID while simultaneously learning more about the disease every single day. We look forward to establishing a standardized national approach to such care across VA in the coming months that will continue to be updated as we learn more and more about long COVID. This will benefit veterans as well as the healthcare community more broadly as we share our knowledge and expertise in a widespread fashion. Thank you. We'll now open the floor up to questions. Ellen? Good afternoon. Thank you all again for doing this. Um, Ellen Milheiser with Synopsis. Is the VA's research being done in collaboration with research done at NIH and um, DOD on long COVID? Uh, certainly some is in collaboration, and we are talking about doing more. Thank you. Leo Shane. Yeah, thanks again. Um, just to follow up on that, is there anything you've seen that's connecting uh, long COVID to veterans specifically, or is it just that you have the uh, the medical records and the, the ability to, to look through those and develop um, develop better uh, research? Yeah, primarily the benefit is that we have those records and that we are able to make those comparisons between patients that have long COVID over time with those that did not. 
Um, with regards to any special risks that veterans would have to, to develop long COVID, that would be related to their underlying medical conditions, their age, and their risk factors in that that might skew them from the general population. Okay. We're, we're still taking a look at that as a part of what we're looking at. Okay. And I, I know the active cases among patients have started to tick up again in recent weeks. Um, I don't know if that's a reason for concern yet. It's not the spike that we saw before. But what is the what is the prediction for the summer, for the coming months, in terms of what the preparation for COVID has to be for, for veteran patients and for VA staffers? Uh, so right now we have a uh, workforce that is engaged in planning for this, what we call moving forward. And rather than being simply reactive as, as we have been in the past, as everyone has been, we are in the process of creating essentially a proactive response to what we expect will be continued surges and dips over time that are somewhat predictable but not completely predictable. Uh, so that way we'll have a posture that's appropriate each medical center to their local uh, uh, transmission rates. Leo, I, I might just, um, if you guys are okay with this, I, I might just add one thing here. You know, you've heard me talk in the past about a, a metric we have, which we track very closely, staff unable to work due to COVID. Uh, this morning, that number is uh, north of 1,260. Um, that's a 60, I think you said 68% increase on two weeks ago. Uh, and so we're not approaching yet the kinds of numbers that we were wrestling with in January or February at the height of Omicron, which was uh, uh, upwards of 16,000 staff unable to work daily. Uh, but remember, before Omicron, the highest that number had gotten was about 5,700. Uh, so at 12, uh, at able to work this morning, uh, I'm uh, continue, I'm uh, increasingly concerned about what we're seeing. Thank you. Orion. Thank you all for, uh, for doing this as always. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I, I know that Deputy Secretary Remy is in Spokane today, so I'll let my colleagues there Ask some tough questions. Yes. But I would like to just ask you a couple sort of high-level questions. You're going to ask me the easy ones. That's on good. EHR. Um, first, the, the OIG report out this morning uh, says that, projects uh, that every year of scheduled delay with the EHR effort will result in about $2 billion in cost overruns. Are you still confident that that project is going to finish on schedule? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Donald's not yet in uh, Washington State, but he's on his way. Um, and I'm really eager to hear uh, what he finds out on the ground. Uh, we continue to hear uh, updates from both Spokane and Walla Walla. Um, we continue to get very important updates uh, and actionable information from both facilities. On um, your question, I, I continue to believe that uh, we have the budget authority that we need. Uh, over the life of this project, if we have reason to believe that that's changed, we'll obviously uh, go straight to Congress and talk that through with them. Uh, we'll obviously uh, be entirely transparent with you all as well. But at the moment, I believe we have the budget authority we need. And just one more question on, on EHR, sure. if I could. Um, Dr. Adiram, in her written testimony for tomorrow's House hearing, uh, says, as you and others have said before, there so far have not been any cases of patient harm related to the EHR effort. Um, as I reported over the weekend, there was a Sentinel event in Spokane about a month ago where local uh, leaders reported uh, severe harm, temporary severe harm in one case. Um, how do you square that? Well, look, I think it's really important to make sure that uh, Dr. Adiram appears uh, tomorrow before uh, the committee, and I'm sure they'll have an extended conversation about this case. We have looked at that case, and I want to be careful to not uh, characterize a, a case where I have to get into a, uh, a veteran's uh, private information, but uh, I think we uh, are watching that closely, stand by it, what uh, Dr. Adiram had to say. I understand not getting into the private you know, the information in that particular case, um, are you aware of any other instances in which uh, a veteran at Mann Grandstaff or any other facility 
uh, using CERN and Millennium has been harmed. I am not aware of any. No, I'm not. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Great. I just want to remind our folks online that if uh, you have a question, that please uh, use the raise your hand function. Uh, Patricia. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, on long COVID, can you talk a little bit about the health burden of prospective patients in the future? Um, what percent of your 600,000 people might be experiencing long COVID? How many people are we looking at? And then what does the budget look like to take care of them going forward? Well, I can address the clinical piece. What we're seeing so far, it's about 4 to 7% of infected patients that develop long COVID. That number may change over time as we do more research, um, but that's what we're looking at. We also obviously don't have enough time to know just how long we're going to be following these folks for their conditions. Um, and then I'll defer to... Sure. You want to go, Steve? I'm happy to go. Yeah, so I, I just say on the budget, uh, you know, one, one of the things that informs the budget, uh, request that just went to the Congress I'll be testifying about, uh, I'll be testifying about on thir Thursday in the House, uh, is our ongoing concern about deferred care as a result of COVID as well as, uh, issues related to long COVID. So I don't have an individual breakout of what percent accounts for what, but you'll, you will have seen in the medical account about a, a 12 to 13 percent increase. In fact, in, in specifically in the healthcare account, maybe as much as a 20 percent increase. Um, that is in reaction to these, uh, uh, two concerns that we have. The deferred care, which is, uh, you know, uh, a much more significant part of that, but I don't have an individual breakdown of which accounts for which percent. Um, on the interim rule that's going to be published tomorrow, yes. do we have an estimation of how many people uh, this might affect with those nine um, conditions? Yeah, we do, uh, but I don't. Uh, so we'll make sure that uh, Kayla and Melissa and, Ter and Terrence follow up with you afterwards. But one of the one of the factors that went into these um, uh, these presumptives is the relatively uh, the relative rarity of them, but coupled with the severity of them. And that's why we felt particular. The severity is the uh, principal reason we felt uh, duty-bound to move as quickly as we've moved. Can I get in one more follow-up? You can um, ask. It's an uh, easy one. Given that that one didn't really get answered, um, in terms of deferred uh, appointments, yes. Um, what kind of backlog are we looking at? Do you have like any assessment of how many people are you're expecting in the next year to come forward and need health care that they've postponed from COVID? It's a good, that's a fair question. Uh, I can get that information for you afterwards, unless Steve, you have it at the tip of your tongue there. Yeah, I don't have it at the tip of my tongue, but I want to make clear that we have been on top of this since the beginning of the pandemic and have been trying to see as many veterans who could be seen safely and were willing to come to get assessed throughout it. So, uh, so we keep uh, following this closely and we can try to get you more uh, information. Thank you. Great. We have a question from Jory Heckman from Federal News Network Online. Can everyone hear me? Yep. We hear you, Jory. Great. Well, thank you for taking my question. Uh, Jory Heckman with Federal News Network. Uh, just curious if there's an update at all with office reentry plans for the VA workforce. I think a uh, month ago we heard that bargaining, uh, bargaining unit employees were supposed to return to the office by May. Uh, is that still the current plan at this point? Yeah, uh, Joy, thanks very much. Um, the, we're, we are engaged in, uh, negotiations now with, uh, with our bargaining unit employees and with the un their union representatives at individual facilities across the country. Um, so, uh, no update to the plans. There's some, uh, who will be going back in early May, uh, some that will be going back later in May and some going back, uh, into June. But, uh, we, uh, we'll make sure that we're providing you updates on each of those. Uh, those are going to be, uh, managed at and rolled out uh, at a local level. Uh, there won't be one 
um, national date where the bargaining unit employees come back uh, across VHA and VBA and NCA. Jonathan. Thank you for doing this. I'm Jonathan uh, with military.com. Um, I wanted to ask if you could further discuss the timeline of the development of the new long COVID programs at the approximately 20 um, VA facilities across the country, um, and if there are other locations that you expect will eventually be in development. So we are still working through the specific timeline, but the, the 20 sites have been working on it for a while, so we're anticipating them coming online, even if just partially, uh, in the next uh, few months or so. Uh, what we also are doing, though, is we are developing clinical guidelines, and so uh, we don't want to wait till we get to 100% of our facilities setting up these multidisciplinary cl uh, clinics. So what we want to do is provide uh, if the primary care providers, other providers, with advice on what it is they should start to do to help veterans with these symptoms and how to assess them and how to evaluate for them. And so those guidelines will come out uh, in, in the next few months, and that should also help expand access uh, to long COVID care in the coming months. What was the process like in terms of choosing the current VA facilities in the future 20 that are in development in terms of location across the country? Well, it was twofold. Number one was we wanted to have uh, some uh, uh, geographic disbursement. Uh, we also are looking at, over time, having centers of expertise and having telehealth to those, uh, perhaps to parts of the country where rural parts or other uh, potentially uh, areas that are not being served. But equally important, we were looking for our leaders in COVID who uh, had the capacity and the interest and the the multidisciplinary team to come forward and 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 start moving out on in this area and so ultimately we had uh, these initial 17 sites were uh, particularly interested and had subject matter experts at their facilities to get started thank you steve can i can i say one thing about this uh one thing i'd say in, in reaction to your last question is um as I've witnessed this, uh, I'm, I conti I'm continually struck by uh, what I consider, consider to be a fundamental attribute, a very positive attribute of the VHA system across the board, which is we have clinicians who listen to their patients. And so an overriding issue that is guiding this clinical work is our clinicians who are on behalf of their patients. Who, whom, to whom they're listening closely and whose symptoms uh, and experiences they're learning from, um, that's who's really driving these decisions. Uh, I think you think that's fair, Steve? Yeah. And, I th th and this, raise, this goes to a point that Dr. Brill made, which I think is not uniform in the healthcare system today, which is that uh, it is not always the case that patients feel heard by their clinicians. And I'm not saying that that is, uh, we're 100% successful at that, but I am struck uh, by what I witness, both from these two clinical leaders, but also from our clinicians across the country, that that is a defining attribute of our system. And that is why I think we are today, I think, well above you know, a couple standard deviations above the median here on the performance as it relates to confronting long COVID. Uh, Sarah. Thank you for um, having called this event. Um, a couple of questions. Firstly, of the uh, vets with long COVID, what percentage were vaccinated and or boosted and who were not? And of the long COVID, does it affect men veterans more or women veterans more? So um, I don't have the exact numbers for you. 
What I can tell you in general is that vaccination protects not only against COVID infection, but for those who are infected, it does reduce the risk of long COVID. As far as the male-female distribution, in general for COVID infections, uh, males have tended to do worse. And those are the statistics that I have, if you have anything more detailed. Uh, just from some of the studies that I've seen also that uh, when they look at whether gender, age, race, there is no uh, uh, impact per se. It just effect, affects everyone uh, across, including people who shouldn't normally be getting these complications, such as diabetes, uh, that they don't have any known risk factors for diabetes. And yet they, uh, about 20 per 1,000 uh, individuals seem to get uh, diabetes or are getting treated for diabetes. Thank you. Do we have any further questions? We'll go back to Leo. Mr. Secretary, you mentioned you're going to be on the Hill on Thursday. I know you're going to get a lot of questions about the backlog and your, uh, what, what these new presumptives will do to that. Can you give us an update on where the disability backlog stands? Yeah, thanks very much uh, for asking that question, Leo. And uh, I just talked uh, to Tom uh, and Mike to make sure I had the, the most up-to-date data. Uh, as of uh, right now, backlog is down to 230,000 cases. Uh, we have in this, so far in this fiscal year, decided 927,000 cases, uh, which is a record as of this moment. At the same time, we have received 930,000 cases, uh, claims this year. That 930,000 is a 15% increase on last year, year on year. Uh, so that's the backlog. As it relates to getting ready for, uh, you know, obviously implementing the presumptives the president has uh, put in place now, this these will be 12 conditions. These nine rare respiratory cancers in addition to sinusitis, rhinitis, and asthma. Which we put into place last, which the president uh, director we put into place last year. Um, between that, what we'll look at later this year, which relates to lung cancer, brain cancer, constrictive bronchiolitis, and then whatever additional uh, presumptives Congress enacts, uh, we're trying to get ready in a number of ways. One is by maintaining over time uh, at VBA. Two is by increasing hiring at VBA. You know that I've been giving you updates on the 2,094 VBA employees. As of uh, two days ago, so that would have been the 23rd of April, uh, 1,650 of those personnel are hired and in training. That's 79%. Uh, we're still on track to meet our goal to have everybody hired uh, by this summer. Uh, then we'll have the training tail on some of them. Many of those uh, people are already obviously into training, but there'll be a training tail on all of them. Uh, then lastly, we're uh, obviously looking at, as we've briefed in here as well uh, with Rob Reynolds a couple months back, the automation process. So uh, we continue to add new conditions. I think I said last month we're adding four new conditions into the automation process a quarter. I was wrong. It's three new um uh, conditions in the automated process per quarter. Uh, so the team, in fact, is in town today working on that. Uh, we're continuing to work forward on that as well. So are, are you still confident with the the timeline and the projections you were looking at? So it would be a couple of years before you can pull it down under 100,000. But do you still feel you're on the right track for that? I do. I do feel like we're on the right track for that. I feel like we're continuing to make good progress. Um, but let, let's be clear that um, uh, we should. nobody's resting on their laurels here. Uh, both because uh, we shouldn't have any backlog uh, when we're working uh, particularly well. Obviously, the pandemic has complicated that. Uh, but we also have a lot of vets uh, who are going to, uh, for the first time, get a shot at uh, these conditions and these claims, both through the process that the president has put in place 
and through whatever uh, the Congress uh, is able to work on uh, here later this summer. Uh, so we're not resting on our laurels. All right. Thank you, Ken. Ellen. Hello, Ian. Um, of the employees who are out sick of COVID, yes. do you have any idea how many? I know you said you were going to give, you weren't going to question religious exemption requests, and you were going to try not to fire anybody. What's the status of moving people around or letting people go? Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, I, I don't think we have at our fingertips uh, the vaccination status of individual staff unable to work. Um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, the individual supervisors have access to that data. We, uh, we don't at this level, but at a kind of a granular level like that. Um, one, two, recall what I said about exceptions, which is I said I will not challenge the legitimacy of any exception, religious exception or health exception, except if there was a clinical reason uh, to do that. So Steve and I have been working on this and working very closely with the network directors. Uh, we have ascertained that there are a handful of specialties where um, our ability to assure veterans that we've taken every step uh, to protect their safety uh, and protect them from being exposed to infection um, is so important that we will not allow exceptions in those uh, specialties. Among them are ICU oncology, um, for two examples. Um, we are in the process now of uh, beginning that disciplinary process across the system. Uh, you, you recall that I've talked you through that, that uh, very, um, shall we say, comprehensive uh, process uh, that each employee has uh, access to. And so we'll see how that continues to play out. To date, there's been six employees who have been separated. One for refusing to give uh, vaccination status at all. Four for refusing to wear a mask. And one for refusing to test. So we'll continue to work this issue. But again, the, the decision here at the end of the day was has been a clinical one is how do we ensure veterans that we've taken every step within our power to assure their safety and their security uh, so as to not add to the challenge of deferred care that we've spent a little time uh, discussing here today, even if Patty thinks I didn't answer her question. <laughs> um, as a follow-up, here and before Congress, you and other VA officials have said that if somebody is in one of those specialties and doesn't want to get vaccinated, they'll be offered another job. Has we, that we will happened? Seek to, we will seek to reasonably accommodate them. That's correct. Has that happened, and has anybody left because they didn't like the alternative assignment? Um, uh, that, that process is happening uh, by facility and by network. So has it happened? Yes, it is. And in fact, it is happening. Uh, and even as I've been traveling, I've had um, nurses coming up and making very strong, passionate, firm, professional, um, compelling arguments to me personally. And I appreciate that very much. I want to be part of a system where people uh, have that ability to talk uh, plainly, uh, even passionately uh, to their leadership. So that's happening across the system uh, where we're making reasonable accommodations. Um, I am not aware, but maybe Steve, I'll go to you next on this, if you're aware of anybody who, uh, even as we've reasonably, reasonably accommodated their request to not be vaccinated, uh, while also doing everything, assuring veterans that we've done everything in our power to protect them, um, whether anybody has chosen to leave VA as a result, I, I, I haven't heard any cases like that, but maybe you have. I've not heard of any yet. Gail? Yeah. Any other questions, ladies and gentlemen? All right. Well, with that, uh, that concludes today's press conference. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to joining you again next month. Well, thank you to uh, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough, other members of his uh, leadership team.
for uh, providing us with that uh, monthly press conference. Uh, what you heard was from last uh, Monday, April the 25th. I'd like to follow up on a couple things that VA Secretary Dennis McDonough mentioned. Early in the press conference, he mentioned uh, that uh, the next day, which was last Tuesday, April 26th, the VA announced that it was adding nine uh, respiratory cancers to the list of presumed service-connected disabilities in relation to uh, military environmental exposure to particulate matter. And uh, we've mentioned that on the show before, but uh, uh, the VA did publish their uh, interim final rule effective last Tuesday, April 26, 2022. And those nine uh, rare respiratory cancers include um, squamous cell carcinoma of the larynx, squamous cell carcinoma of the trachea, adenocarcinoma of the trachea, salivary gland-type tumors of the trachea, and then uh, a number of different types of uh, cancers of the lung, including adenosquamous carcinoma of the lung, large cell carcinoma of the lung, salivary gland-type tumors of the lung, sarcomatoid sarco, sar, uh, carcinoma of the lungs, and typical and atypical carcinoid of the lungs. So the VA is uh, immediately starting to process disability compensation claims related to those. And as Secretary McDonald also mentioned, those nine are in addition to three other conditions which were um, added to the presumptive list last year, specifically last August, which were asthma, rhinitis, and sinusitis for those that served in um, Southwest Asia and certain other areas overseas. Uh, so for more details, you can certainly go to va.gov. And the other thing I wanted to follow up on that was mentioned in the website, although it was mentioned kind of cryptically, you might have heard one of the reporters ask Secretary McDonough about an HR issue. He wasn't referring to human resources. He was referring to health records. And uh, there's been some reporting in national media recently about an issue, some problems they're having that were identified at, um, in, at the VA's medical centers in the state of Washington and they relate to uh, the, uh, the implementation of a new electronic health records. That's the HR that was being referred to. Electronic health record systems being developed by a company called Cerna, C-E-R-N-E-R Corporation, in a $16 billion contract effort to replace the older VA healthcare system that's still being used at other VA facilities, basically to track patient information and to coordinate medical care. Very important computer system. And, it, and uh, the, the recent uh, controversy uh, pertaining specifically to the Spokane, Washington VA Medical Center and some of its associated clinics in Washington State uh, deal with a problem that uh, was discovered by some medical personnel there that uh, some medications that had been uh, prescribed before this current Cerner Corporation health system, health record system was launched, that some of those medications were disappearing from the list of a patient's active medications uh, when the prescription had expired before, um, before the uh, a year after it was written, and then it wasn't transferred into the new electronic system. And in one particular case, it resulted in the veteran um, uh, being hospitalized for heart failure because medication wasn't uh, continued, and uh, fortunately that patient survived. But it, it resulted in um, several of the uh, VA medical staff um, raising the issue, and it's being investigated. So that's what Secretary McDonald was discussing. When one of the reporters you just heard asked him about HR, he was referring to health record systems. And, you know, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar project as the VA is trying to tra transition to a new electronic health record system. Anyway, more to follow because uh, Congress is, uh, has their eye on that uh, issue. It's, it's pretty significant, uh, and we'll try to track that as well uh, for you. Uh, just a couple quick items of news before we run out of time for this evening's show. Uh, the organization called Military Veterans Advocacy, which is a premier veterans advocacy group in the United States, is encouraging veterans and supporters of veterans and family members 
to contact their representatives in Congress about some important bills, some proposed legislation that will affect many veterans. And uh, Military Veterans Advocacy, you go to their website. It's easy to remember. It's militaryveteransadvocacy.org. And you'll see on their homepage a tab called Bill of the Week. You can click on that, and you will see organized by week, going back many months, uh, each week one or more bills. Um, you will find highlighted with a summary, and you can also click on the links, answer a couple questions as far as identifying you know, who you are and where you live. That will then link you to your representative in the United States House of Representatives and your two U.S. senators, where you can then uh, quickly send an electronic message uh, of your support or your views on that legislation. It's very important uh, if you want to have uh, you know, your voice heard at the Military Veterans Advocacy org makes it very simple. And, of course, you can also contact your representative and your two U.S. senators through the congressional websites, which are, again, easy to remember. It's House.gov and Senate.gov. There's a lot of legislation every year affecting the VA and veterans and military members, and this year is certainly no exception. The heavy, the heavy lifting, the heavy detail work is done in the House and Senate committees, and uh, it's important that those members of those committees hear your views as well. So um, those are the items I want to, uh, to highlight. Uh, I'd like to close the show with our weekly reminder emphasizing a very important VA program. It's called uh, Coaching into Care. It's a VA program that helps veterans who are having a tough time uh, making the transition from military life back to civilian life. Returning home, especially serving overseas in, in the war zone, can be tough adjustment, and loved ones can help. So Coaching Into Care offers free coaching from VA personnel to help you help your veteran. Give the program a call. It's Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The toll-free number for Coaching Into Care is one 888 823-7458. Again, the VA's coaching into care number, toll-free, 1-888-823-7458. In addition to the coaching into care program, the VA has a veterans crisis line to help uh, veterans who are in a crisis of any kind, whether they're suicidal or facing any other sort of crisis. The veterans crisis line, 24-7, any hour of any day, it's one 800 273-8255, and then press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255, and press 1. Well, it's time for us to go for this evening. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour here on BBS Radio Station 1. I'd like to thank our producer at BBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom. We hope you'll tune in next week, same time and station, which is 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Mountain, and 4 p.m. Pacific Time here on bbsradio.com station one for another edition of the Veterans News Hour. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans' issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.